Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. My name is Jordan. I'm the pastor here. And wow, a lot of people prefer this side of the church. Okay. I'm sorry, little stragglers over here. Um, it's Advent, and all over the world this morning, pastors are feeling attention. I am. On the one hand, we are all now digesting the leftovers of Thanksgiving feasts. So it's time for Black Friday. Um, it's time for Cyber Monday and trees and shopping for gifts and hot chocolate by the fire and the Polar Express and whatever else your Christmas traditions are. But on the other hand, the church's lectionary does not let us go immediately to the cozy scenes of um, wise men and the star and the shepherds and the manger. And instead, it sends us into texts like we just heard read, Luke 21, where Jesus is promising a coming time of anguish and perplexity and apprehension and the passing away of heaven and earth and terror. So welcome to Advent. It's the tension we feel as we begin the new year, the Christian year, with this theme. Now, the word Advent means arrival, Before we arrive upon the baby in the manger at Christmas, the church asks us to consider the promised second coming of Christ in glory, when the Son of Man will come in power and great glory. So if silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, captures the essence of Christmas, then this first hymn we sang this morning, which I had no idea Matt was playing, but Matt was just in tune with the Spirit, that Charles Wesley captured the essence of Advent with these lyrics that we sang. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, God appears on earth to reign. Advent is unique among the church seasons because it is the only one that looks definitively forward to Christ's return rather than back at Christ's first coming and in his life while he was here. Now, in this way, the church invites us to begin our year with the end in mind. Where are we going? Like, humanity. What is the point of all this? What is the great telos of all creation? The end to which history is headed is the cosmic reign of Christ the King. That's the answer that Advent gives. So let's turn to Luke 21. You now have Bibles there in your pews if you'd like one, or if you want to use your phone, I encourage you to open and follow along. We're going to start in verse 5 of Luke 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Let me read this, beginning in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, that is Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, these words are kind of remarkable because the temple in Jerusalem was among the most splendid, solid, strong, beautiful structures in all of antiquity. It had been under reconstruction for 46 years, over four decades when Jesus prophesied of its destruction. The ancient historian Josephus describes the temple in great detail. This is an extra-biblical historical account. He says, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. 
So approaching strangers, to, it, to them it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon the, and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height and six in breadth. That's the size almost of a boxcar on a train. Solid stone. So Jesus is looking upon this mountain of a structure of marble and gold, and he says, not one stone will be left on another. And the disciples, obviously, are just flabbergasted. How could that, what, when, what are you talking, how could this possibly be? So Jesus goes on to prophesy about the end of the temple. He warns of wars, and then false messiahs, and persecution, and spirit-enabled testimony before the courts of the land, all of which we read about in Acts. He basically gives an outline of Acts right there. And finally, of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. In the midst of all, he said, in the midst of all that, he says, stand firm and you will win life. So that's kind of the teaching right before our reading today. This seemingly unfathomable thing is going to happen. The temple, this mountain, is going to be destroyed. Well, Roman legions do surround and breach Jerusalem 40 years after Jesus' prophecy. As a matter of historical fact, in 70 AD, Josephus and the Roman legions. Sorry, the Roman legions surround Jerusalem, and Josephus again describes what happened in detail. And one scholar summarizes Josephus this way. The roofs of Jerusalem were thronged with famished women with babes in arms, and the alleys with corpses of the elderly. Children and young people, swollen from starvation, roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. But there was no lamenting or wailing, Because famine had strangled their emotions, Jerusalem could not bury all the bodies, so they were flung over the wall. The silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping the bodies. Brutal. Just as Jesus promised in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem was trampled upon by the Gentiles. A matter of historical fact. And then as we ask the question, why? We come to a fairly uncomfortable teaching that this was an act of God's judgment against Jerusalem and against Israel. In Luke 13, Jesus tells a parable of woe about the stubborn pride and fruitlessness of his beloved vine, Israel. He tells this story. He said, A man had a fig tree and planted a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none, and the vineyard is Israel. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none, so cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on more manure. In other words, give it another chance. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Four years. Is that fair or unfair? Four years. Well, the Lord has given Israel centuries. Time and time again, he's been reaching out, calling Israel to repentance, doing everything he can to win them back so that they might follow him and his agenda and bear fruit for the sake of the world. But they refuse him. And the final act of refusal is the God who made them, the God who delivered them out of Egypt and through the waters, is now in their midst as the Messiah, and they're going to kill him. Jesus grieves in Luke 13. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Can you hear his brokenheartedness? So he says, behold, your house is forsaken. And in AD 70, God abandons Jerusalem to the fate 
that he had tirelessly warned her of, should they refuse his agenda, a fate he desperately longed to spare her of, because it was a brutal, ugly fate. And then in Luke 21, 25, our reading today, there's a plot twist in Jesus' teaching. And the scene pivots from the localized judgment of Jerusalem to the cosmic judgment of the world, from the end of the temple to the end of history. And as Jesus is teaching these words, remember where he is. He is on the very mount, the Mount of Olives, that the glory of God had departed from the temple 600 years before. You can read about it in Ezekiel 11. The the glory of the Lord departs the temple, and it's the, the saddest moment in Israel's history. The presence of God leaves them, and it goes over the Mount of Olives, and then it departs. But then Zechariah prophesies, and we heard that read this morning, the Lord is going to return on this very mountain where he had departed, the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, prophesying about the end of the temple, and finally the end of the world. And he says, now in verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is all Old Testament language. It's found all over the place, but for example, Joel chapter 2.30, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. So the day of the Lord is when, in the words of the creed, he shall come again in glory to judge to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus as judge is not always an entirely comforting thought, is it? It is very much what is in plain view. As Jesus goes on in verse 27, he then says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and in great glory. Son of Man here is language launched like an arrow from Daniel chapter 7, finds its target in Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 is a vision that takes place in the throne room of heaven, And it's what happens after Jesus' ascension as he comes into heaven. He's received by the Ancient of Days. And there the Son of Man is given all power and authority and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. So the ascended Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's this Jesus who's described in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the fury of the winepress of the Lord God Almighty. He will tread the fury of the winepress of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before this Lord, this judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you see what Jesus, the masterful teacher, has done? He's overlooking the temple. He warns of its judgment. And then I wonder if in verse 25 his eyes bounce off the temple, up to the heavens, over the temple, as he takes the temple warning and he detonates it on a cosmic scale. He says, it's not just Israel that's going to be judged. The world will be judged when he, the Son of Man, returns in glory on this very mountain. It's judgment day. It's a bit terrifying, really, with a sword from his mouth to strike down the nations treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, each man, woman, and child summoned to his judgment seat. But then look how Jesus concludes in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, that is the signs that he's spoken of and his coming is imminent, straighten up your heads. Raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. 
It turns out that the terrifying judgment of Jesus as the climax of world history is actually, for those who hope in him, the happy ending of history. It's our redemption. Josephus' brutal description of Jerusalem's judgment is a localized picture of what happens when men and women and societies abandon the humility and the peace and the justice and the accountability and the love of God. They trend, we trend towards pride and violence and injustice and hate, and in the end, a complete loss of hope. In his recent book, Hope in Times of Fear, Tim Keller traces the thread of hope in human history. Prior to Christianity, the idea of linear historical progress did not exist. Um, History was thought of as cyclical, primarily, as in the great conflagration, conflagration of you know, Ragnarok in Norse mythology, or in the Greek thought, something similar, or in Confucianism, these um, primordial energies of yin and yang, which interact and continually recreate the world, and so there's a cycle. Alternatively, maybe history was thought of as a long, slow decline into nothingness from the golden age of the past into the deteriorating present. But the Christian idea of a, of a progressing linear sense of time that's going to climax in a glorious common destiny featuring one final judgment changed everything. Charting the history of progress, one scholar named Robert Nisbet says that the Enlightenment then took the Christian idea, a deeply Christian idea of linear progress towards this common glorious destiny, and then secularized it, cut it off from God, made it non-religious made a historical process activated and maintained by purely natural causes, causes like science and technology and politics and things like that. Now, for a time, this seemed to strengthen humanity's sense of shared hope in the future. In the 19th, sorry, the 20th, early 20th century, and throughout the 20th century, I said 19th, the centuries thing, does that catch anybody else? It's sort of like the time change. It's like, it's not hard. Just get it in your mind. But it gets me every time. But Hegel, Marx, Darwin, they each made significant contributions to Western thought that society, humankind, was evolving, improving. It was destined to get better and better and better and better. No need for God. We would would get better and better through science, through through politics, through technology, through evolution. And so there was this great swelling sense of hope prior to the 20th century. But then early on, it was obliterated by two world wars, World War I and II, and then a great flu pandemic. And then the Great Depression, and stories and stories of genocides piling up, and these things burst the naive modern bubble that human nature, if given enough education and enough science and enough rationality, was basically good. So Keller captures the loss of hope in the words of the great British writer H.G. Wells, who wrote early on in the 20th century, during the time that hope was high, he wrote these words, Science has brought humanity such powers as he has never had before. We are in the earliest dawn of human greatness. Can we doubt that our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That it will achieve unity and peace. In a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden, going from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. That's the sense of hope that was swelling prior to the 20th century. And then such high hopes in science as the savior of humanity, several decades later, had been crushed. 
The same writer who just wrote these words writes about 20, 25 years later. He writes, The wanton destruction of homes, the ruthless hounding of decent folk in exile, the bombing of cities, the cold-blooded genocides, the return of the deliberate use of torture and mental torment in a world from which such things should have been, seemed to have been banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Keller then catalogs the recent almost revivals of hope. In our day, technology, media, social media, politics, we turn to each of these things in hopes that they're the the silver bullet that's going to slay the vampire that haunts humanity. That's the real problem. But despite the promise of these almost revivals of hope, today hope is at an all-time low. Study after study confirms that especially in our youngest generations, hope is on the wane. There's pessimism widespread about the future. A Harvard scientist listed five factors that he thought would destroy Western civilization. Nuclear war or terrorism, famine, climate disaster, plague or pandemic, and boredom. He then points out that technological advancement and the so-called progress of Western society has actually only addressed one, food shortage. The rest, technology especially, has worsened our prospects. So yes, medicine has dramatically improved health. We're grateful for it. It's a gift. But technology has also created a globally connected world wherein things like COVID-19 are not limited to tribes or cities. They're global. Keller points out two problems with secular hope. He says the first is that humanity seems to have a problem ultimately that science and technology and philosophy and politics and reason are not powerful enough to fix. We simply can't fix what's wrong with the human heart. The Bible calls it sin. It's the idea of missing the mark. Each of us inclined to selfishness, inclined to think of ourselves before others. None of these things ultimately changes our hearts. We're capable of enormous self-centeredness and cruelty and violence and injustice. One scholar says that the jargon of philosophy of progress taught us to think that the savage and the primitive state of man is behind us those primitive savages back in the day. But he says that the savage, the barbarism is not behind us, it's within us. It's within us, all of us. It's sin. The second problem with secular hope is that at best, it offers a vanishingly temporary hope, a hope that's like a mist. You try to hold on to it and it's gone. In 1948, the world was acutely afraid of nuclear war. In the midst of this, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay on living in an atomic age, and he wrote to a people who were afraid that an atomic bomb was going to end history altogether. He wrote, what were your views about the ultimate future of civilization before the atomic bomb? What did you think all this effort of humanity was to come to in the end? And the secular answer that he references is simply this, it's going to come to nothing. When it's done, it's done. He goes on, if nature is all that exists, no God no life of some quite different sort outside of nature, then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun, and so humanity will turn out to have been, quote, an accidental flicker. Infinitesimably short in relation to the oceans of dead time which proceed and follow it, and there will be no one even to remember it. If history is an accidental flicker, then life is exactly as Macbeth said, a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This means, among other things, there's no justice, no ultimate meaning-making reckoning. 
of all the rights and wrongs that have gone on in the world. Wars, abuses, injustices. There is no accounting for such things. There's a look at them, and then there's a meaningless whimper and a shrug, and the lights of history go out, a brief flicker, no one to remember it. And against this backdrop, Luke 21 says that when Christ returns in judgment, we are to lift up our heads in hope because our redemption has arrived. How does this work? The second advent of Christ addresses all three problems, well, two problems we've just named concerning the secular ideas of progress and hope. First, the second advent of Christ is the last chapter in a story which comprehensively deals with what science and technology and reason have not been able to deal with, sin. Advent asks us to look steadily upon the coming of a God of justice and holiness against sin. In John Stott's words, if God does not take action against sin and sinners, then sinners are in no danger and do not need salvation. Only when we take seriously the wrath of God against sinners do we put real meaning into the salvation that Christ wrought on Calvary. In other words, no ultimate judge means no ultimate basis for morality. So right and wrong are a matter of preferences at best or sensibilities or dispositions. We are morally autonomous. We are free to love. We are free to hate. We are free to kill. We are free to crucify. Generally, whoever has power gets to do what they want. And then at the end of the day, none of it matters anyway. And when we actually believe that the divine judge is going to come back and hold the world accountable, then we recognize that not only is our sin deadly serious, and we're going to be held accountable for it, which means... The, the universe is full of moral significance. Right and wrong is real. Good and evil is real. Our choices actually matter. Which humbles us, doesn't it? Because we look at our own hearts and think, oh no, I'm quite selfish. Aren't I? But then that's when the cross is full of glory and power because we recognize this God of wrath against sin. He's sparing us. He's offering us his love. Knowing we'll be held accountable by the divine judge means right and wrong are facts, not fictions. Because when you see then that Christ the Lord, sword in his mouth, right, with which to strike down the nations, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, has all the power and rights in the world to judge you, but instead he's bled for you because he loves you gently, meekly, tenderly. Something is birthed in your heart that cannot be grown in a lab or taught in a classroom. The one who will finally judge you is the one who has definitively loved you. His judgment is your redemption, that moment when you're going to finally hear the words you hope to hear most. Beloved child, with you I am well pleased. This is the kind of love from the King of Kings that strips sin of its power. Second, Christ's return in judgment offers hope that a secular hope cannot, because it's an eternal one. It's an eternal, it's not a vapor. It's, it means life is not slowly declining into nothingness. Life is not an accidental flicker with no one ultimately left to even remember it. In place of the hopelessness of nothingness is the significance of eternal divine justice, which unlocks such hope that it revolutionizes how we behave. For example, it frees us from enemy love. My favorite reference to this I've used before is from Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. 
He says that it's precisely God's judgment that enables Jesus' forgiveness from the cross to his enemies. It enables us to forgive our enemies. It enables us to love our enemies. Because to the concept of a cuddly God without a sword, a God of permissive love who never judges anyone, so neither should we, and his job is to be a divine just pat on the back. To that idea, here's what he says. Imagine speaking to people, as I have, says Wolf, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and then leveled to the ground, and whose daughters and sisters have been, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats cut. Would you tell them not to retaliate? Why? Because God is a God of love, and he doesn't judge, so we shouldn't either. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb to birth the belief in a God who refuses to judge. It takes the quiet of a suburb to birth the belief in a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. So in the wake of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, Dante Stewart wrote in Christianity Today of his experience as a black man and as a Christian in Southern California, and he's wrestling with the pain that he felt in the wake of those events, and he's prophetically grappling with sinful systems of racial injustice. And then he concludes this way, and this is an application of Miroslav Volf's words. He says, Thank God that the final word about black life in America is not death on the lynching tree, but redemption found in the cross. The cross was God's rebuke of abusive power. God took the evil of the cross and the lynching tree and transformed them both into the triumphant beauty of the divine. God can take pain and transform it into power. So do you see how the ultimate vengeance of God and judgment of God on sin means we don't have to live as the avengers? We're free to release bitterness. We're free to forgive. We're free also to hope that in the final accounting, our pain and our suffering, and the world's pain, and the world's suffering, it's not just a shrug and a whimper and lights out. It's going to be filled with God's purposes. And he's going to bring justice, and he's going to make all things well, and justice is going to roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. History will not end with an indifferent whimper. It will end with a justice-bringing bang. Christ's return. What hope we have. A few weeks ago, in a spiritual direction retreat, I was asked to confront what might be wrong with my image of God. All of us are, I mean, um, Tozer says the most important thing about you is what you believe about God, because who you believe God is shapes so much of how you act and live and behave and think of yourself and others and interact in the world. And so this spiritual direction retreat was aimed at addressing what is amiss with your view of God. So some of us may tend to really want to just very, very soft God. Others of us may tend to a very, very harsh God. Um, what is your view of God? Is he the divine Santa Claus who exists to bring you presents? So all of us have these things in our hearts that we're like, hmm, God might want to correct that. And so that's what we were processing. And so several images were put up on the front to help us process all kinds of different images that would evoke different emotions. As I processed, I realized that my image of God has been very powerfully impacted over the past six or so months since the events of May 19, um, when, as most of you know, maybe not all of you, a man passing by the front of our house attacked my four-year-old son. And then there was, I was home, I intervened, and 
was traumatic and everything, everyone's okay. So praise God for that. But in the wake of it, um, instead of seeing, oh, I was home and we're okay, my heart continues to go back to how could that happen? Like, how could this have happened, God? Why did you let this happen? And so I realized that my image of God, um, I was good with a God who was loving and kind and merciful. That comes pretty naturally to me. But I was really having trouble believing in a God who was powerful and who would protect, who I could trust with my family. So I chose this photo. It's of an older man with a magnifying glass. And um, you might think it's like, oh, God is inspecting me, but that's not what came to mind. I'll just read to you what came to mind. This is Jesus speaking. Um, And this image is Jesus. As a young man, I, Jesus, loved you fiercely. These many, many years later, my powers have faded. I see you now dimly from a distance. I love you well enough, but your heart, your life, the world's burdens, your son, these I no longer have the will nor strength to carry. If I am a king, I am a king at a distance. And when I am needed, I may be needing to nap. It gets at this idea of my image of God as one of love, but not necessarily one of power. And so things may have happened to you. Similar things, different things. And your image of God is amiss. I need Advent to remind me of this aspect of who God is. That he is not too tired. He is not too weak. He is not too indifferent. He is not too powerless to come to my rescue or my son's rescue. I need it to remind me that his judgment is terrifying. Terrifying in power. Yet perfect in justice. That he is the son of man who will come in glory, and if there is vengeance to be done, it's in his hands. You know, the the court case with this is ongoing. I mean, just a few, just after it happened, the police were ready to release him back out to public because of some mental health issues and because of COVID and the jails were, were full. And so what does justice look like in this situation? I don't even know. I honestly have no idea. Um, but that's okay. The Lord will do the reckoning. He will make all things well in the end. So that's the happy ending that I desire most. History is progressing towards Christ's coming. And that may sound as unfathomable to us as the temple's judgment and the huge stones toppling down did the disciples. But when Christ returns, the second advent will no longer be a subject for discussion. It will be a reality. And it will find you either, it will find us and me either, the Bible says, crushed in terror and anxiety, trembling face down, or standing tall in hope for our redemption, our King, our Savior is at hand. So, dear friends, the invitation of Advent is to repent. Trust in Jesus' agenda. And then you may confidently hope in history's happy ending. Then you may straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Father, I pray that you would apply to each of us uh, the words we need to hear, that you would correct the, way, uh, the ways we see you unclearly, that you'd help us to understand you as a God of great power, um, as a just judge, but also as the just judge who's given his life 
to save us, to pardon us, to forgive us, to love us to to death. We thank you for the hope of Advent. Thank you that life is full of meaning and purpose and that you're bringing it to a beautiful, hopeful, just conclusion. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.